So one of the deepest uh, problems in our world that I think increasingly is worthy of lament um, is the fact of just how deeply divided so many aspects of our culture has become in so many ways. Of course, some of this is obviously inevitable as our society becomes more and more pervasively pagan in many ways, as many people are become more openly hostile to God and His Word. Jesus told His own people in His own day that He had not come to bring peace, but a sword. So there's always a sense that the gospel will expose our deepest allegiances, that it reveals who are those who truly love God and want to serve Him, and who are those who oppose Him and hate Him. So in Jesus' day, as well as in our own, we should expect the world to be divided increasingly between people who love the gospel and people who do not. But it seems that new battle lines are constantly being drawn and redrawn so that the number of people and groups and tribes and the reasons to oppose and hate people within various groups, this is only accelerating as time goes on. Let me give you a brief example of what I'm talking about here. So this happened uh, about a month or two ago. I was at my oldest son's birthday party at a local trampoline park uh, close to where I live. So we have this party on a Saturday. It's packed. There's tons of people there the entire day, lots of people the whole time. Um, I never actually saw this incident happen, thankfully. Uh, later, it was relayed to me by my daughter. So we go home later, and she says that something kind of weird happened to her. I'm like, okay, well, what was it? And so she says that at some point she's jumping around, she's having fun with her friends, uh, and there's this other girl who maybe looks like she's a, maybe a year or two older than her comes up to her, and she approaches her. And she keeps asking her this question over and over again. And at first, my daughter doesn't understand what is she asking in this moment. And then after a couple of minutes, she realizes that this girl is asking her whether or not she's a supporter of Donald Trump. Uh, right? Just kind of surprising. Uh, and later on, when she's telling this story, we kind of get the impression that she keeps asking her this, uh, and she's expecting the answer to be no. And if, anything, if the answer is anything other than no, um, it was not going to go well. She's not going to be very happy in this moment. Now, when I first heard this story, it kind of shocked me. And the more I think about it, the more it, it really makes me angry for s several reasons. First, just the idea of the, the absurdity of the situation, right? Apparently, preteen girls this day and age are really into talking about politics at the trampoline park. That's, that's a, uh, a surprise for me. And the fact that this girl wouldn't approach someone who couldn't vote, who had no say in the matter, right, uh, was also confusing, right? You think if she wants to change the world, she would approach someone who had, who had a say in the matter. So that's, that's very confusing to me. But the thing that really makes me the most upset when I think about the story my daughter is telling me this is that this person approaches my daughter. She's a stranger. She doesn't know my daughter at all. And she wants to pick a fight in public right, over political beliefs. So when this person sees my daughter, they don't really see her at all. They do not see my beautiful, talented, caring daughter when they, they look at her. They don't see the glorious image bearer who reflects God to our world in some really important ways. Uh, my daughter's entire created and redeemed person was really reduced in that moment 
to whether or not she supported someone who is no longer the president of the United States. So when you think about this, like this girl obviously was a product of a family, right? Adults in her life who likely viewed the world in the same kind of way. People who don't see people as human beings, but only as battle lines. Lines that are drawn strictly around whether or not you support Donald Trump. And this kind of deep division in this instance, I think this is just a little slice of a huge problem, right, that is increasingly everywhere around us, right? This much wider problem of how people are understanding the world and how we can very easily become people who hatefully oppose people in ways that dishonor God and we dishonor people as well. To be fair, I think this problem is, is pervasive, right? I see it on the left, I see it on the right. You can think about the recent viral sensation of, of Let's Go Brandon, and again, see, this is a very clear example of the kind of thing I'm talking about. Now, this might be hard for us to imagine, but in the first century world of Jesus' day, uh, he lived in a world that was far more divisive and fractured even than our own day and age. So in Jesus' day, ethnic and cult cultural racism and bigotry and tribalism and misogyny, all of these things were pretty much the norm. Uh, the land of Israel in the time of the New Testament was divided uh, into various religious groups, lots of religious sects, some who wanted to reform Israel, some who believed that the reforms that were happening were not good enough and they needed to separate themselves uh, from uh, most people. There are plenty of people in Israel who maybe had no huge issue uh, necessarily with uh, making peace with those who held the reins of secular and political power in Israel. You can think about the word Pharisee. The word Pharisee means separated, right? So the idea being uh, that this is a group of people that wanted to be distinct. They wanted to be separate from most people in Israel who were perceived to be people who didn't really take uh, their religion seriously. People who didn't take the Torah seriously. Sometime in the first century AD, a common prayer was developed by Jewish rabbis that all Jewish men are supposed to pray every morning. This is a prayer that even Orthodox Jews still pray to this day. Listen to this. It basically says, thank God I'm not a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. Can you imagine the news headlines, right, if this kind of prayer is openly prayed at our own politi politically correct day? So it's within this world that we read this remarkable story about how Jesus uh, comes to this person who is very culturally different from him in a lot of ways. And what we see is Jesus' love and care for this woman in some really extraordinary ways that reveal the glory and the grace of God. So our goal this morning is really to look at the Lord Jesus in order to learn how do we bring the gospel into a world that is deeply divided? And how do we bring the gospel specifically to people who are deeply broken as well? Okay, let's open up the scriptures and let's turn our attention to John chapter 4. Let's dig into what we read just a few minutes ago. So in John 4, our story starts with Jesus and the disciples. They're going to decide to travel from Judea in the south, and they're going to go north towards Galilee. So the region of land between these two parts of Israel was 
Samaria. A lot of us may remember from Sunday school, Samaritans and the Jews, they didn't like each other. They hated each other for a lot of reasons. Jews in Jesus' day viewed the Samaritans as Gentiles, people who had really departed from the true faith of Israel. Part of the animosity between Samaria and Israel came from the fact that hundreds of years, several hundred years before Jesus, the Gentile Greek army actually occupied the region of Samaria for a time. They used it as a base from which they would exercise control and attack people in Israel. So the Samaritans were on the wrong side of an important war. That's one reason that there's animosity. The Samaritans embraced part of the faith and the traditions of Israel, but they rejected others. They had really significant theological differences as well. Uh, the Samaritan scriptures included the first five books of the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But they would have rejected the rest of the Hebrew Old Testament that the people of Israel would have uh, ascribed to as God's word. The Samaritans would have rejected the authoritative location of the temple in Jerusalem, and they would have constructed their own temple in Samaria on Mount Gerizim, a temple that the Jews of Israel actually destroyed about 128 B.C. Several years later, the Samaritans would retaliate against this action by sneaking into the temple mount on the night before Passover in Jerusalem, and they scattered the dead bones of people all over the temple area to defile it ceremonially so that essentially the feast of Passover was ruined in Jerusalem. You see this animosity again in John's gospel, not only in our passage, but later on in John chapter 8. There's a scene where the religious leaders of, of Israel want to insult Jesus. So what did they say that's the worst thing, the most degrading thing that they can think of? They call him a demon-possessed Samaritan. Uh, is the, the name they use for him. So again, you get a really clear picture of just the widespread hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. So the relationship between the people of Israel and Samaria, this was obviously one that involved centuries, hundreds and hundreds of years of hostility and animosity towards one another. These two sides disagreed over important issues, and their differences had hardened into this clear cultural divide that both sides were very happy to maintain. Okay, so in verse 5, we're told that Jesus comes to this town in Samaria called Sychar, a place that has lots of uh, Old Testament uh, history behind it. John mentions that a field was there that was once given to Joseph by his father Jacob, and also a well was there that Jacob himself had built. Now again, just the very simple fact that Jesus chose to go through Samaria and stop there would have made him very different than many people of his own day. He usually would go out of their way to not even set foot in Samaria, and instead they would go around that part of Israel to get where they wanted to go. So in verse 26, we're told that Jesus comes to this well in Sychar about the middle of the day. He stops to rest. He's going to stop there and get a drink. So as he's resting, we're told this unnamed woman, we never learn her name, but this Samaritan woman comes in order to get a drink, and when Jesus sees her, he asks her, for a drink of water from the well. All that's really simple and really straightforward. Uh, these, those seem like small and significant details, but there's several things right away that would have made this scene very unusual uh, for Jesus' own day. First, it would have been really unusual for a woman in Jesus' day to come to a well alone and to do this in the middle of the day. People in that region, they would go get their water earlier in the morning, or they would go get it in the evening because it was really hot uh, in the middle of the day. They wanted to avoid the heat. 
for safety reasons. Most women, they would not be out in public at a place like this alone. They would have traveled in a group uh, with other women. Uh, and what also stands out to me is the fact that she comes alone during the day when there, deliberately there would not have been many people there. So you kind of have to wonder, is she doing this on purpose, right? We don't know for sure, but it's very reasonable to guess that she didn't want to see a lot of people. She didn't want to be around people in her community. And later we learn why, because she has uh, this serious sexual sin issue in her life. She had a string of, of multiple husbands. So it's very reasonable to, to wonder if she's, if she's deliberately avoiding people because of this. The second really unusual thing about this scene is that men would never have spoken to a woman in public in Jesus' own day. That wouldn't even come near enough to a woman to touch a woman uh, according to the Jewish social rules uh, of Jesus' day. So it's customary in Jesus' own day for a man to back away from a woman at least 20 feet if she approaches you in public. And the third thing that happens in the scene that's really remarkable is Jesus' willingness to ask for a drink and to use the same container to drink from that uh, assumingly she would have drank from herself. So for Jews in Jesus' day, anything a Gentile would have put to his or her mouth would have been rendered ceremonially defiled, unclean for a Jewish person. It's something a Jewish person would not uh, put to their mouth. So any Jew who drank, even from the same cup, after a Gentile, they'd be making a really important religious statement about the Jewish purity laws and basically how we're going to disregard these things. Okay, so how does Jesus respond to this woman? What happens first? What really strikes me is he knows her right away. He knows her story. He knows her sin. He knows her shame. He knows everything else going on in her life. And he's not afraid of her. He doesn't view her as a threat or someone to condemn or avoid at a distance. Instead, he's going to draw near to her. He's going to engage her. When he looks at her, he sees a human being. And he defies all kinds of cultural boundaries in order to get close to her, to talk with her. And right away, you get the sense, right, that she's shocked by this. Uh, she is dumbfounded that Jesus would speak to her in public, um, considering, again, the enormous cultural divide that exists between the two of them. After Jesus asks for water, she says in amazement to him, she says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Again, you just see how amazed and confused she is by this entire scene that's happening in front of her. And you can see that Jesus doesn't respond to her question immediately, but he begins to turn the conversation towards deeper issues right away. He says to her in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So what is Jesus doing? Immediately he wants her to see her deepest need, her deeper need. That she needs something that no well, no literal physical well could ever provide for her. More specifically, she doesn't really need a something. She needs a someone. She needs Jesus. She needs the gift of God's Son that the Father has sent into the world. And he wants her to see that he is ready to freely bestow God's good gifts on those who simply ask. 
Jesus' response in verse 10 highlights the generous, free nature of the grace of God for all those who will humble themselves and see their need and simply ask. His words here also echo other Old Testament passages like Isaiah 55, which describes God's salvation as this rich feast of food and drink that God graciously bestows on anyone who would come to him. Listen to Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 2. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Thankfully, we live in a modern world, a highly developed country where most people don't ever really think about the necessity of water. We just turn on the faucet and the water almost always comes out. But in the first century world, in a part of the world that was mostly desert, water was a matter of life or death. So Jesus would have immediately grabbed this woman's attention by telling her he has living water that he can give her, that has the power to quench this deeper thirst forever. Throughout verses 10 through 15, Jesus will use the symbolism of water to point to God's salvation that he brings to his people. And you can see this throughout the scriptures. Throughout the scriptures, water is used uh, to describe God's blessing or God's work of salvation or restoration or renewal or God's work of faith in the lives of his people. Think about how the beginning of the Bible starts. What do you read in Genesis 2 when you read about the garden sanctuary of Eden that God first creates? We read after the man and the woman are there, we read about a river a large body of water that flows from it and from this huge river, four other major rivers uh, come from it. Think about Psalm 1, which describes the righteous person, the person who belongs to God and his people, the person who delights in God's law, we're told. Do you remember how he's described? He describes a tree that's planted by streams of water, a tree that bears good fruit and it never withers because it's nourished by this constant source of life. We can think about the prophet Ezekiel. At the very end of the book of Ezekiel, he's given this vision of a future restored temple in Israel. And this vision includes this huge river that flows right out of the temple sanctuary, a river that gets bigger and deeper, and everything that the river touches, it brings life to it. This vision finds its ultimate fulfillment in John's description of the new heavens and the new earth that will be inaugurated when Jesus comes again. The last chapter of the Bible ends with a description of water, of this river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. We can even think about our entire theology of baptism is connected to this truth as well, that the blessings of God's salvation are connected to water. Every time we confess the Nicene Creed, we say we believe in one baptism for the remission of sins, What are we saying? We're essentially proclaiming in a very condensed way this truth that we see here in the scriptures. So in our passage, when Jesus mentions the living water that he wants to give her, he's referring to this rich biblical image of water that's symbolic of God's life, God's salvation, something you see from the very beginning of the Bible and goes all the way to the very end. Okay, so first, the woman doesn't really understand, right, what exactly Jesus is saying. She points out to Jesus the obvious. You have no bucket to get water out of the well with. 
where we are. And she asks a question, verse 12, that really drips with subtle irony. She says, are you greater than our father Jacob? What she obviously doesn't know yet is what we know. That she's speaking to the one who created Jacob. The one who always was and always will be. She's speaking to the greater Jacob. The one who's come to fulfill every promise made to Jacob and his family. The one who has come to forever establish God's family from every tribe and every tongue and every language. So the answer to her question is an overwhelming yes, something the woman will soon discover for herself. And Jesus, again, he wants to point this woman back to himself to help her see that he has what she needs the most. She says to her in verse 13, everyone uh, who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Jesus goes on, the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water rolling up to eternal life. And we can again begin to see in verse 15 that this woman is being drawn to Jesus. I'm not sure at this point she fully understands what he's offering, but you get the impression that what Jesus has described is something that's beginning to look very attractive to her. Something he describes in a way that looks alluring and desirable. She thinks, I want what you're offering. Okay, what does Jesus say to her next? It's so fascinating to think about Jesus' approach with her. He could have taken a dozen different approaches that all would have been legitimate. He could have made an apologetic argument about why the Jews were right and the Samaritans were wrong. That would not necessarily be an illegitimate option. He begins to wade into the important theological differences a little bit later between the Jewish people and Samaria when he talks about the worship of the one true God and how salvation is from the Jews. But I think it's fascinating that Jesus doesn't really begin his dialogue uh, with the meat of his dialogue there, does he? Where does he start with her? Where does he begin? Notice Jesus gets straight to the heart of where this woman is separated from God. Jesus tells her to go call her husband. Then she replies, she has no husband. He says to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. So what is Jesus doing here? What is his, what is his approach? Jesus starts with this woman by pointing out where in her life does she need a savior? He mentions the broken, sinful situation of her current living situation. She's living with a man who is not her husband. She's had five husbands previously. So he goes straight to the heart of her own sin and the painful mess of her sexual and relational life. And so what can we learn from this? Well, we see that Jesus shows us how to engage with people outside of the church. Jesus teaches us in a really practical way, how do we do evangelism? We do evangelism by getting to know people well enough to see where exactly in your life do you need a savior. And if we want to model the Lord Jesus to our unbelieving world, then we have to do the relational work of loving and caring for and listening to people well. So this means that if we're going to be faithful to the Great Commission, that we must be people who are interested in developing relationships with people outside of the church who are not Christians. And we must be unafraid to talk with people about sin. Again, because it's only sinners who need a Savior. And Jesus himself says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. People of God, what if we as God's church incorporated Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman into our understanding of how we're going to interact 
with unbelievers? What if we spent just as much time getting to know unbelievers in our lives and sharing the gospel and talking about sin in Jesus as we did speaking out against whatever sinful things that we see happening all around us in our culture? Again, there is a place for the church to be a prophetic witness against sin. I believe that's biblical, that's true. But if a prophetic witness is our only model, if it's our only mode for evangelism, then I think what we can easily do is wind up spending a lot of time speaking into a void where no one is actually listening. And the Bible says that faith comes from hearing. And so Jesus teaches us in our passage that we cannot limit our interaction with the world to proclamations communicated at a distance. The gospel has little to no impact when we shout the world from a distance about sin or talk to the world about sin from a distance instead of talking directly to people, living, breathing people in our lives about why we need a Savior and how Jesus is that Savior. So if we want to follow Jesus, we must be willing to roll up our sleeves and get involved in the messes of other people's lives and interact with them on a personal level. So people of God, do you know your unbelieving neighbors or your coworkers or your family, your friends well enough to know where is it exactly they need a Savior the most? And will you move towards them and speak to them and listen to them in ways that demonstrates how Jesus moves towards other sinners. Okay, let's move on in our story. What else do we see? What's the woman's response to what Jesus says? I find her approach fascinating and disturbing because of how eerily familiar I am with it. And all the ways I see religious people do this. She chooses an extremely popular tactic that I see all the time. I think what she really wants to do is attempt to hide from her sin via theological discussion. Right? Isn't that basically what she does? After Jesus had put his finger on the most painful, broken part of her life, she immediately changes the subject to who has the correct location of the temple, either the Samaritans or the Jews. She says to Jesus, Our Father is worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She clearly is not really interested in talking about her sin or responding to what Jesus has said. Instead, she wants to talk theology with Jesus to get into the specifics of some of the things that culturally have divided the Samaritans and the Jews. The Southern novelist Flannery O'Connor once wrote this about one of her characters, one of her books. She says, the best way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. And I really think that's a great description of, of what we see here. And of course, we can't avoid sin. And neither could this woman. Her life was clearly marred by some sinful messes that she had made. But in this moment, when Jesus exposed what matters most, she very quickly wanted to change the subject, move the spotlight away from herself, away from her sin, and instead began to look like a really religious person who wants to make sure that she's right on this theological point of where the temple's located. Again, that's a tactic that I think looks and feels really familiar, doesn't it? I've done this countless times. I see other people do this all the time. Uh, in the South, especially certain parts of the South, many people would still subscribe to some kind of outward, semi-Christian set of beliefs. I still have yet to been, uh, I've yet to attend a funeral in my entire life ever where the deceased person is proclaimed as an unbeliever by everyone there. 
Those who are deceased are always described as Christian people regardless of what they believe, regardless of how they live. So having some abstract theological discussion with something is something entirely different than being honest about your own sin with someone else. That is actually a much harder thing to do, isn't it? But dealing with our sin first and foremost, I would say this is our only pathway to truly knowing Jesus. And I find it incredibly interesting this woman would choose one of the major hot-button issues in her own day between the Jews and Samaritans really in order to deflect attention away from her sin. People of God, we must always be on our guard against this kind of thing. The temptation to use our own theology in ways that always externalizes the battles we fight against another person or a group so that we never really have to face ourselves and we never really have to deal with the own sinful messes in our lives. Another important truth here that's very simple, but it's really important and it really needs to be said, is the beautifully good news here that Jesus has come for sexual sinners. We don't know lots about the Samaritan woman's story, but we do know that relational and sexual sin and failure was a significant part of her life. We can easily begin to imagine what life was probably like for a woman who had a whole string of failed marriages in her past, and currently she was in a place of sexual sin, sin that would have been known by people, sin that would have made her a pariah and outcast likely in her own community. For a number of us here, sexual sin is a significant part of our own story, either in the past or right now in the present. And maybe that's a part of your story that still brings you searing guilt and shame or a deep sense of despair or frustration. Some of you here, maybe you're married to someone with this battle and you carry all kinds of heartbreak, all kinds of wounds yourself from this. And so for the sexually broken, we need to hear the good news today about who Jesus truly is. That he is someone who moves towards others and he offers his life to sexual sinners. You need to hear this morning that Jesus hasn't just come for other people. He has come for you. He's come to offer you hope uh, that you could stand before God clean because of what Jesus has done through his death and resurrection. And he's come to give you the hope that you could become someone different other than the person that you are right now. Okay, for the sake of time, let's move on and let's uh, talk about how Jesus uh, responds to this woman's attempt to avoid dealing with her own sin. I think what we see here in, in the next set of verses is just one of many examples in the Gospels of Jesus being patient and gracious uh, with sinners. He says to her in verse 21, he says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Jesus, again, has a, a way of pointing this woman to her deepest needs, needs that she herself doesn't see and she doesn't really understand. Jesus basically tells her that God is coming to do something new in him. That the geographic location of the temple no longer matters because I think what he implies is that he now is the final true temple for God's people. And there's a gentle rebuke, I think, for, here for her as well. Jesus essentially is telling her that she, along with her people, the Samaritans, they were wrong about the physical location of the true temple being in Samaria. And he does begin to wade into this theological divide between the Samaritans and the Jews. 
When he says there in verse 22, he says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus here clearly is proclaiming the priority of the people of God in Israel. And he's telling her that the Samaritan woman and the Samaritans, they've missed the living God. I think it's clear that Jesus' primary purpose here is to point this woman to himself. He wants her to see that he himself has come to transform and fulfill everything God's people have been promised, everything that they had hoped for and were waiting for. Jesus had come to restore true worship, worship centered around the Father and the Son and the Spirit, worship that flows from people who are going to be reconciled to God. So Jesus continues, listen to what he says. He says, the hour is coming, is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now lots of ink has been spilled on what exactly this means. True worshipers must worship God in spirit and in truth. What is Jesus talking about? The most obvious possible meaning of this verse becomes a lot more clear when we just read through John's gospel and see how the words spirit and truth are usually used. The words spirit and truth are used in the exact same sentence three other times in John's gospel, and every single time they refer to the spirit of truth or the the work of the Holy Spirit. So it makes sense that that in John's gospel here, he's referring to the spirit again in our passage, that worshiping in and through the Holy Spirit uh, is an essential part of how we know God, how we worship God. And worshiping through the Spirit is not primarily about having some intense, uh, ecstatic, emotional, or spiritual experience, but about worshiping God through what the work of the Spirit does in our lives. Other places in John's Gospel, the New Testament, make it clear as to what exactly the Spirit does in the lives of God's people. He's come to help us tell the truth, He's come to make the truth known, the truth about our sin the truth about who Jesus is, the truth about what he has done, and who we truly are as a result. Later in John, Jesus says the Holy Spirit bears witness about himself and leads and guides God's people into all the truth. So a reference here in verse 23 to the role of the Spirit in our worship, this could also round out a description of the three persons of the Trinity that you see in our passage in verses 23 through 25. Jesus has already mentioned several times worshiping the Father. And in verse 26, he tells the woman that he is God's son. He is the true Messiah. Um, And then finally, we get this reference to the Spirit as well. So another way of thinking about what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth is that we worship the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so part of our worshiping God involves recognizing who God truly is and what he has done and what he's continuing to do in our lives through the work of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Okay, how does our story end? Where does it go from here? Um, For the sake of time, we'll have to summarize several verses. But in verse 27, you read the disciples, they come back, they find Jesus, and again, they're amazed. They're shocked by what they see in front of them. That he's speaking to the Samaritan woman. Again, they immediately recognize the extraordinary nature of what Jesus has done and crossing multiple social barriers and talking to this person who is an outsider in so many ways. And then verses 20 through 29, we see that the Samaritan woman, she goes on to become really the first evangelist in John's gospel. We're told that she leaves behind her water jar, she goes back to her town, and she begins telling people about Jesus. She says to her people in verse 29, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. And she asks, Can this be the Christ? 
I think it's incredible at the end of our passage in verses 39 through 42, we see that many Samaritans, they put their faith in Jesus and they believe through the testimony of this Samaritan woman that he encounters by the well. And the Samaritans then ask Jesus to stay with them longer. We're told that Jesus stays with them two full days. And again, we just can't overstate the significance of this in Jesus' first century world that a Jewish rabbi would stay with some of the most hated people in Israel, people that God had grafted into God's people because they responded to Jesus with faith. It's also significant in John's gospel, it's those outside of Israel, those on the other side of the cultural divide, the Samaritans that first respond to Jesus in faith in significant numbers. I think it's really fascinating when you read John's gospel to this point, what I find so striking is the contrast between our passage, and what happened just before this in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, we see Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's a ruler of the Jews. He comes to Jesus to inquire about him and learn more about who he is. Now, Nicodemus was about as much of an insider in Israel as you could possibly get. He was a member of one of the most strict and powerful and popular religious groups in Israel. But I find it so incredible that Nicodemus comes to Jesus on the sly at night at a time uh, where he'll likely not be discovered by anyone else. And think about this contrast between this scene versus our passage in John 4. In our scene, we see a woman whose life was full of the shame and the failure of sexual sin, a woman who would have been despised and avoided by most people in Israel. This is a woman who speaks to Jesus out in the open in public in the middle of the day, and she receives the living water that Jesus offers her, and she becomes this woman who boldly is going to proclaim Jesus to her own people. What we see in her is we see the mission of the church lived out in a powerful way. That salvation is of God's people, but that it must also always go out from God's people into the world. And so what we see in our passage today is we see this powerful and beautiful picture of what Jesus and his kingdom are all about. How Jesus has come to make outsiders insiders. He's come to draw people outside of the people of God into the fold. He has come for people who look and act very different from us, who believe things very different from us, people who are opposed to God's people in many ways. He's come to make a people for himself, a people who are primarily defined by their love and their servants, service and their allegiance to King Jesus. People of God, if the church remains faithful to the Great Commission, if we want to remain faithful to it in proclaiming the gospel, then this means we should expect people who are on many different sides of our cultural divide to be brought to faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we should expect God to continue to create a people and shape a people for himself that are united around the things that matter the most, an allegiance to King Jesus the Savior of the world, an allegiance that surpasses every other allegiance on this earth, whether it's social or political or anything else. Jesus' words to his disciples apply to us just as much as they apply to his own day, that we should lift up our eyes and see, we should see that the fields are white for harvest, a harvest that God wants us to participate in by sharing the gospel to those on the outside. And in doing this, we show our dark world who Jesus truly is. He is a light to those who sit in darkness 
in the shadow of death. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your word. We pray now that you continue to minister to us by your spirit. Make us be a people who love the Lord Jesus. I want to see his gospel proclaimed uh, throughout uh, our city, throughout our country, and throughout the world. Come and continue to be our helper, continue to be our strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.